Brian, thank you very much for your kind introduction. You're a hard act to follow, and by follow, I mean following your second Jenkin lecture in 1989, which I agreed hugely. Uh, it's about keeping cool, and so I'm going to do just that. <laughs> I've never given a lecture in my life with a coat on, and I'm not going to start at my senior age. I also have here something out of The Guardian on Tuesday, which is entitled, Why Engineers Yawn Less Than Psychologists. <laughs> they put a lot of engineering students and psychologists, psychology students, in a room and got people to yawn and saw how many people followed them. And you'll be glad to know that the engineering students averagely yawned 1.5 times, while the psychology students yawned 5.5 times. <laughs> so you have it officially that engineers don't yawn, and I don't expect to catch any of you doing so in the next hour. <laughs> right. I feel very humble to give this lecture because what I'm going to do is the work, describe very briefly the work of probably 200 people and of a lot of very valued colleagues. Unfortunately, uh, Terry Jones, who is probably the, been the mainspring of our turbo machinery research, couldn't make it today, but I had a very pleasant time going over this lecture with him on Thursday. Okay, so if I can get the system to work, it wouldn't play my things before. I'm going to describe what if I can be completely immodest, was probably the, or is probably the most successful turbo machinery heat transfer group. I mean group. Um, <laughs> I'm going to talk about people. I'm going to mainly mention the academics so that there are huge apologies for all the other people I've left out. I'm going to talk about the innovative wind tunnels we used, uh, mostly short duration wind tunnels, which is our speciality. And I'm going to talk about the innovative instrumentation, which is mostly heat transfer instrumentation. Now, the, this I've already said, and I'll try and keep on the main themes. It's so nice to see uh, a lot of old friends here, including from Rolls-Royce and what is now Kinetic. Um, I hope I don't undermention your contributions, which are large. Okay. So let's start out and say, what's the problem? Why is gas turbine cooling important? Well, Whittle's first engine here uh, had a single shaft, no cooling on the turbine at all, so there wasn't a problem. When you look at a modern engine such as the Trent 800 here, then we have a very complex three-shaft beast, and the bit we're interested in, which is the small high-pressure turbine here would melt if it wasn't cooled. And, of course, the driver is thermodynamic efficiency. We all know as engineers that the hottest, the hottest part of the cycle, then the more efficient the engine. And these engines are running at over 50% efficient. They're, one of the, they're some of the most efficient uh, thermodynamic engines in existence. The bit that we're interested in is the high-pressure turbine, which is immediately downstream of the combustion chamber. And we have here, for example, 
a nozzle guide vane which is fixed, followed by a turbine blade on a rotating disc. And the blades are cooled by relatively hot air. The combustor gas is at about 1800 Kelvin at the moment. The blade metal has a maximum temperature of about 1200 and they're heavily cooled with compressed air from the compressor at about 800, so it's all hot, but the compressor air is a bit cooler, and so um, air is put in, firstly, to try and remove heat from inside the blade, and then it's fed through um, holes and to the surface of the blade to provide to reduce the, to try and reduce the heat transfer on the outside. And the modern turbine blade is a very complex beast. You can see it has lots of holes through it here. There's a section through a nozzle guide vane. Inside there are all sorts of things, baffles and pins and ducts and so forth, which, whose object is to try and increase the heat transfer on the inside, so you cool the blade. And then when the cooling air comes out through the cooling holes, the object is to minimize the external heat transfer. So you've got two problems. One is to make the heat transfer large, and the other is to make the heat transfer small, and we have done both. And I'll say something very important here. If you're going to do heat transfer work in this sort of environment, you have to understand the aerodynamics, and so you'll see I'll show you a lot of aerodynamic pictures on the way. We came from hypersonics. It sounds like coming from Mars. <laughs> Basically... Douglas Holder came, who sadly died at his desk in 1977. He was the head of the National Physical Laboratory's hypersonics division, and he came to Oxford in 1961, and he established a hypersonics group in Oxford. He brought with him Prof Don Schultz, um, who is an Australian brought up in New Zealand, whereas you'll find later I'm a New Zealander brought up in Australia, so there's a nice symmetry. <laughs> He's an electrical engineer, as am I, and he came with Holder from NPL to a lectureship, later became the Donald Pollock Reader and the Professor of Mechanical Engineering, and he and Terry Jones founded Turbo Machinery in this department in uh, 1968. Terry, as I say, sadly can't be here today, uh, retired in 2005. He's a physicist, so we're not the standard mechanical engineers. Um, and he became the professor of turbo machinery when Don sadly died when walking in New Zealand at the age of 60. And I'm the Johnny-come-lately. I joined doing um, plasma physics, changed to hypersonics, and I joined the turbo machinery group in either 1974 or 1973, I can't quite remember, and I retired last year. Now, hypersonics use devices called shock tubes, which are very short-duration wind tunnels that can provide hot high-speed flows, and they uh, also... Um, this is, for example, a picture taken by Terry in about 1967 of a hypersonic flow impinging on a cone, it's argon and it's self-luminous. Here's a uh, re-entry model cone. You can see a shock wave around it in the Schlieren, it's doing about Mark 7, and it had thin film gauges on it which we used to measure heat transfer. 
And Douglas Holder and Don Schultz realized that the techniques that were used in hypersonics could easily be used in, um, uh, for gas turbine research. So they modified the shock tube in which that purple picture was taken last time in 1968. This is the shock tube here, dump tank there. I had a shock tube down the left-hand side, which is thankfully out of the picture, uh, where I was doing my doctoral research. And um, they put a flat plate working section with unusually a throat downstream rather than upstream and started doing flat plate work. This is an early visualization of flow out of a row of cooling holes into main flow. They then realized that they were having air at 2,000 degrees flowing over a model at room temperature, and really the uh, temperature ratio was not right. So, ah, just I've forgotten about this. This is a picture in <laughs> 1973. Um, the interesting thing is uh, Richard Morgan there is still doing hypersonics in, in Queensland. Roger Ainsworth is still involved with us. I'm still involved. Trevor Godfrey is still making thin films. Keith was still around in 2000. He comes back occasionally. Terry's still with us. Um, Kevin Grindrod's there. Sadly, John died. And, of course, Don died, but that's Don Schultz there. So there were 12 in a combined group in 1973. Then Holder and Schultz and Terry started looking for a building in which we could build some large wind tunnels. We looked for a while at the building, which is now the MFI building down Botley Road, but Doug Holder was a romantic, and he came across the old Oxford Power Station, which this is uh, the oldest picture I have. The chimney has long gone. We could have used it. Uh, which sat <laughs> on the Thames. You will notice that the power station superintendent had a little uh, bay window. That was so he could watch to see that his crew weren't fishing out the windows. <laughs> okay. Um, here's a picture of the uh, steam engines and generators in 1897. It was closed in 1969, and this is the last crew is closed. That was the power station superintendent, and that was the tea lady. And when we got it in 1974, it was a not in terribly good condition. And we rapidly found that the problem with power stations is that in the first winter we found this, the problem of power stations is that they're designed to lose heat. <laughs> and it did. So the whole thing had to be re-roofed and insulated. Now, let's go back to the cooling problem. In the engine, we want to get the Reynolds number which is sort of density and viscosity correct. We want to get the Mach number, which is the speed compared to the speed of sound, and turbine blades have a Mach number on exit of about one. They're transonic. And we need to get the gas-to-wall temperature ratio right. In the engine, the gas is at 1800K. The wall temperature, I don't know why it's got two Ks, but there you are. The wall is about at 1100, so the gas-to-wall temperature ratio is 1.6. So on the model, 
we're going to use short-duration wind tunnels in which the model doesn't sensibly heat very much. So that's going to be at around 300K. So going back up the top, you find that you need to get 500K, which is quite difficult with a shock tube because it's too low. Now, we wanted to use short-duration tunnels, and we wanted to use our speciality of transient techniques. So Terry Jones invented a device called the isentropic light piston tunnel. And the isentropic light piston tunnel is a large bicycle pump. We've all put our thumb, thumb over the end and gone like that with the handle. So what we have here is a tube with a large, very light piston in it. The piston starts off at this end. There's a fast-acting gate valve here. You uh, feed cool air into the back. The air in the front is compressed. When it's about 4 to 1, you get it at right temperature. There's very little conduction to the walls in the time you're worrying about. Here's the pressure going up. And then you open the valve quickly, and you feed it through not a turbine, but a cascade of blades. Here's a picture of the tunnel sectioned. Um, it's 0.61 meters diameter pump tube. It's honed inside, um, so that's probably the most expensive part of it. And it has a cascade of turbine blades with the right conditions going through it. Not, it's as if you take a turbine and you unfold it to make it a linear turbine. Okay. And in this case, they're stationary, which helps a lot because you can get the leads out easily. <coughs> we built our own instrumentation. I designed and built these amplifiers. We did our own software. This was the first floppy disk computer in the country, a DEC PDP-11. Um, and they sold us uh, analog to digital converters for which you had to write your own machine language language. <laughs> so none of this just going to LabVIEW. Its power is a lot less than the device I keep in my pocket. It ran off two floppy disks. Anyway, we built the tunnel. This is an early Schlieren of a set of blades which um, the Rolls people will remember is called the two-piece blade. And it's got um, coolant coming out, and you can see shock waves in the flow there. The flows come around there. And in fact, for many years, we ran linear cascades. This is from an exercise with Peter Bryanson Cross, who's at the moment at Leicester, um, who was then at Rolls-Royce, who was a holography expert, and we made these holograms of the flow. These are lines of constant density. Flow comes around there and I could spend the rest of the lecture talking about the features in that flow. But I shan't. We then realized that in a turbine twisted around, blades go past nozzle guide vanes. And they go past at 400 meters a second. Nozzle guide vanes have wakes, and they have shock waves that come from them. So we didn't at that stage want to build a fully rotating rig. We always prided ourselves on the fact that we could find cheap and simple ways of doing it. Now, the expensive way is to run a continuously operating tunnel working at engine temperatures for which the instrumentation costs you a bomb. 
So we thought, how can we get this situation? We realized that if we made some circular bars, they're actually wires, stranded wires, and rotated them on a disk at 24,000 RPM using a uh, turbocharger turbine, the disk was in here, then we could have bars going past that had the right wakes and the right shock waves, and so we could simulate the unsteady flow field because all turbines have unsteady flow fields in the turbine. And we did that and did a lot of heat transfer, a lot of Schlieren, and I could spend two hours talking about that, this picture. But, for example, there's a wake moving into the passage. No one knew how the wake was distorted until we showed what happened when it moved into the passage. We did the shock wave from the bar has reflected off, and because it's a convex surface, it gives a nice cylindrical shock. There are Mark waves there. There are von Kármán vortices there that people said only happened on cylinders. They don't. We've got turbulent boundary layers. You've got a lot of things there. Now, the instrumentation technique we used is based on thin film heat transfer gauges. What they are is a little strip of platinum fired, painted and fired like pottery onto, in this case, a substance called Macor, which is a machinable glass ceramic made by Corning. We put gold leads down, fire, paint and fire gold leads, so that's, it's just using crockery uh, technology. And if you put a small um, current through that and measure the voltage, you've got a thermometer. So we can follow the temperature on the surface uh, continually through that. Uh, some of the blades made by this technique were quite complicated, and I think that's rather beautiful. It'd be a nice coffee table ornament. This is a highly, uh, highly three-dimensional blade, and you can see that there's a row of thin film gauges there and a row of thin film gauges there. To process it, the measured temperature rises during the 0.4 second run, and this is assuming the heat flux there. There's mathematics to do with the conduction in the substrate. In the old days, in the 60s and in the 70s, we used electrical analog circuits to process it. Now we do it with computer to get the heat transfer rate. And from one of those early rotating bar experiments done by Dennis Durley and myself, uh, you can see we can change the number of bars. So this is eight bars running in front of the engine, and this is the heat transfer signals you get at various points around the blade. And you can see it is very unsteady. We could take all but two bars out, and you end up seeing what an individual bar does. And we identified that as being due to the shock wave and that being due to the wake. And we got a very good understanding, which is still used by a lot of people, of what happens in these unsteady cases. We'll see in a little while um, that we built a, a tunnel in Pystock. And peace to you, Mike Neal, but Don always wanted to put a rotor in that tunnel. Uh, Pystock was reluctant to do it initially, so when... I was away on sabbatical in MIT in 19, sorry, in 1986. He and Roger Ainsworth decided to put a rotor in our tunnel. And the idea is you spin the rotor up in vacuum and then 
for, in this case, 0.1 of a second, the rotor accelerates against its own inertia from 6,000 to 9,500 revs. For about three revolutions, it's on uh, condition. And in those three revolutions, you can take it. Uh, can I just say about Roger, uh, he actually did a, a, a doctorate in the early 70s on flow in a curved duct with Terry, went to Rolls-Royce and then to Harwell and came back as a university lecturer. And of course, we all know him as the master of St. Catharines at the present time, but you do know, you'd be glad to know he continues uh, an active research interest. So we took the cascade off the back and put a rotor on. Here's the rotor. They're all sort of, we could talk about the conditions, but the interesting things are how do you get the signals off the blades. We have uh, wiring looms which are um, deposit on the captain going down to the center, and inside is a rotating electronics before the slip rings. So we had to actually design electronics which would stand rotating at 10,000 RPM, which was fun. Uh, I've got some interesting broken circuit boards. The trick is to put the circuit board along the center. Okay, here are some of the instrumentation that was used on the rotor. Here's yet another technique for thin film heat transfer gauges. This is a metal blade. You'll appreciate we can't use the make or glass blades. This is a metal blade, and the deposited thin film gauges on a captain film and then wrapped the captain film and glue it down onto the blade. With a bit of care, you can actually cover the blade. And this stands 6,000 um, 6, G. Roger was also very successful in working with Coolite to get single-chip pressure gauges which were laid into the surface of blades on with a um, coating on them and leads out. So we actually built pressure transducers into the blades. Uh, here are some more blades. Tip, little thin, add more blades, thin film heat transfer blades on the tip. The heat transfer over the tip of a turbine blade is one of the uh, recurring problems, unless you uh, have a trend, in which case there's a platform there. And they measured the heat transfer on the rotating blade, and this is a laser-cut block of gauges, many, many, many of them, which measured when the blade would fit in there, measured what happened on the casing. And again, you get this large variations as you go around the blade of the heat transfer rate, which of course are not predicted by um, steady computational fluid dynamics, and you have to go to unsteady computational fluid dynamics to um, predict them accurately. Uh, they also took the unsteady total pressure behind the rotor. The purple bits are high pressure, the um, red bits are the low pressure, so you can see there's a large loss vortex going around the rotor. These are measurements, by the way. The movie is, of course, put together by many slides put uh, many runs, but it's not a prediction. This is actually a, um, a set of measurements. Okay, and you might remember that we could measure the pressure and um, heat transfer over the blade. This is the wall uh, heat transfer rate and pressure as the blades go past. 
you can see that the jet of air going under the tip increases the heat transfer to the casing a lot, and you can follow the pressure drop going from the pressure surface to the suction surface. Now, there's an organization which was founded, was it founded by Frank Whittle? No. Um, he was founded for him almost. It was founded for him. Ah, thank you. Him, yes. Yeah. Right, because it then got turned into the Nas National Gas Turbine Establishment, or NTGE, then it changed into RAE Pystock, and recently in the privatization binge it got sold off as Kinetic, uh, which I think is one of the most horrible names going. <laughs> uh, they said, you've got this wonderful short duration tunnel, we'd like one too. So we built a very large one for pie stock. It's 1.2 meters in diameter, and instead of a straight cascade of blades, it um, has an annular cascade of blades. And uh, six years later, we added a rotor to it, and that tunnel, with a few hiccups, is still running. It's been moved to Farnborough, uh, the Farnborough site. Uh, this is one of the rotor blades, you can see there's the in-shaft ele electronics, same system, there's the leads out there. And that was an attempt to do some film cooling that didn't really work. And you can't see it very well, but there is a device which patented, which we invented, called a turbo brake, which takes the flow that went through the test turbine and acts as an impulse compressor. And so it tracks the same power as the turbine. So you spin this turbine up in vacuum before the tunnel runs, and then the speed can be kept constant to about 0.2% during a 0.4 second run. And that tunnel has been extremely productive. It's attracted a lot of European money. Uh, a lot of bright Euro um, programs have been run in that tunnel. Uh, and through people like Cam Chana, who um, is ahead of it at the moment, we in Oxford have people working on that tunnel now. Okay, we used the wrapped Kapton gauge techniques, and you can see rows of cooling holes because we cooled this data. And now I'd like to move on to internal film cooling. Now, Internal film cooling is not my particular expertise. <coughs> it was started by Terry Jones in 1983. His student was Peter Ireland, who did a doctorate. He then came, I haven't got it there, but he became a university lecturer here, and he was the acting director of the University Technology Center, which is Rolls-Royce jargon for what we are. Um, from 2003, when Terry Jones was ill, till 2006. He's now joined Rolls-Royce and I'm sure is um, spreading many innovative, in, uh, innovative um, ideas to them. He was joined later by David Gillespie, who is still a university lecturer here. Um, 
and David has provided most of this information. I hope I will do justice to it. Now, the inside of the blade is complex. There are passages through it. There are holes out of it. And for reasons which I won't deal there, it is incredibly important to know in detail what is happening inside these passages. These are isotherms, contours of constant temperature, and you can see that the conductivity of turbine blade material is not that good, and so that there is a considerable temperature difference between the inside and the outside, and it's important to know the heat transfer coefficients on the inside. So Terry came across the idea of using transient thermochromic, i.e. color changes with temperature, liquid crystals. You use small wind tunnels. You do something to provide a step. You have the tunnel running, and you, for example, change the temperature of the gas by putting a heater in the flow. Or we change the temperature of the surface. And then the surface will change, and that, if you know when the surface goes through certain temperatures which are measured by the liquid crystal, you can work out the heat transfer coefficient. The heat transfer rate is the heat transfer coefficient gas temperature minus surface temperature. Okay, there are a lot of advantages of this method. It's cheap, you can use perspex models, and you get very high data resolution, and it's non-evasive because the liquid crystal is just on the surface. That's a a microscopic picture of the liquid crystal. It's encapsulated in little um, bubbles, and it goes through a color change at a certain temperature. So, if, for example, I think I'm going to have to go around here. This is an early experiment done by Terry and Peter. You will notice the blades have pins in them. This is a pin experiment. You will see a color play over about 10 seconds as the surface of the model heats up and the liquid crystal moves. And you will even see that you're beginning to see the horseshoe vortex, which is on the surface there. And you can see what's happening on the pin. If you have, for example, an impingement system here with air flowing through there onto that surface, you can do the same thing. And it's not the best picture in the world, but you can see that you get, again, a color play if you photograph with a video camera. And you will notice on this one that there are two bands of color, not one. And that's because there are two liquid crystals changing color at different temperatures. So that's... now. They now use extremely powerful, um, extremely powerful computational techniques to process pixel by pixel over three or four hundred frames those to get um, contour maps of heat transfer coefficient. If I can. Okay, so going back to impingement cooling, there are plates in the blade, holes, flow comes through, and it impinges on the inner surface to cool it. I don't know what that was. <laughs> okay, we have a simple model. 
We have a heater mesh here, which by turning it on and off, you can change the flow. You have a target plate, you have a impingement plate there and a target plate behind it. It's all perspex, fairly low velocity, and we can get pictures that's a shot from, uh, of color change uh, in the plate underneath the set of impingement holes, and there are surface thermocouples embedded around to calibrate the whole lot. Uh, we also do flow visualization, and that's a um, surface oil flow visualization. You can see the jets hitting the various points on the surface. And you can turn it into uh, heat transfer coefficient mountains like this, showing what happens exactly underneath the holes. And this provides, this is enhancing the heat transfer rate inside the blade above what you would get from a plain passage. Uh, recently, David's done a lot of work on leading edge cooling. Here's a picture of a leading edge of a blade. And they made a leading edge model, put it in a wind, wind tunnel, and used techniques where they turn the flow on and off and on and off like that to get transients, to get changes. And the um, technique there, the, the, these leading edges, you can't see them because I'm not allowed to show you them, but it's a lattice of intersecting holes, and it's going to be, it's, it's being considered for the Trent 900 at the moment. Uh, basically, it increases the heat transfer coefficient inside the blade and cools it in a region which is very hot, the leading edge. Uh, we do CFD studies as well, and that's a CFD prediction of the picture that you just saw recently. Here's something a little bit different. Um, Rolls developed the idea of having a laminar flow nacelle and hired this Fokker uh, 614, which had the engines above the wing, so you could put a camera here and look at them. And Terry arranged to put thin film gauges and liquid crystals. You can't see much of the liquid crystal there to detect where the transition between laminar and turbulent flow was happening. Because you can use thin film gauges because the heat transfer rate goes unsteady when you get transition and you can use liquid crystals. It was a very successful set of tests. Lots of Oxford people got to ride in the airplane and take the results. Uh, not myself, unfortunately. And um, that was used in, it's now used to help the design of nacelles. Now, I worked in Germany on a large continuous cascade tunnel for a while, which had been built by Schlitking in Braunschweig. Uh, Schlitking was one of the, he's written the book on boundary layers. And we discovered that Rolls-Royce were paying large amounts of money to have experiments done in this tunnel. It's a good tunnel, but being continuous, it cost megawatts to run. And so um, uh, we said we could probably do it better. And we built a transient blowdown tunnel here, which in the largest case had um, 300 millimeter blades. Okay, it's a simple blowdown with a uh, going through a cascade, and we did a lot of aerodynamic work. Nick Baines started out, Larry Daniels before him. 
1990, we put an annular cascade there to do both heat transfer and aerodynamics. And the idea of doing heat transfer was interesting because you can do heat transfer. You've got to have a temperature difference to do heat transfer, and we do heat transfer by heating the blades in a cold flow rather than having a hot flow over cold blades. Okay? And uh, by using something called foreign <coughs> gas, which is sulfur-hexafluoride and argon, I'm afraid one couldn't use it now. I think it's a, one of those... Um, nasty gases in the atmosphere that makes us warmer. Uh, Gary Locke started off and then Shenmin Guo, who is now moved on to Louisiana State University, who is our first departmental lecturer, which is a five-year appointment. Uh, it's a big beast. This is about a meter. Um, and we had cassettes and little doors that would open and close to heat it heat the blades before the run. The run's about five seconds. Uh, I won't take you through in detail, but we can duplicate all the necessary non-dimensional engine conditions, but we only need 38 kilograms per second, and we only need it for five seconds. We don't need it continuously, so a large reservoir will do it for you. Uh, the regulator, which keeps the pressure constant uh, while the reservoir pressure falls, is an interesting device. Now, I must patent it sometime. Okay, we had Travis probes, four-hole pyramid probes that developed uh, downstream pressure maps to check with the design. Those are where the wakes, the blades in this case, are bowed. And the lab here machined Perspex blades. They're 1.4 times an RB211 uh, blades, 360 cooling holes. There's an internal passage. We wrapped gauges around them, and did a lot of heat transfer work. Used flow visualization. There are secondary flow regions that we can get with surface flow visualization. And we also used not narrowband, but wideband thermochromic liquid crystals to measure heat transfer. And you can see the cool bits near the holes and the relatively warm bits there. Those are just a, a shot from a video. Uh, we invented, um, I'm very proud to have a patent on something that isn't there. <laughs> we patented the shape of a hole, a cooling hole, which uh, Gary and I came out of an ASME conference, a cooling session, and said they're all doing it wrong, and got the proverbial envelope out and drew this out. And Jane Sargison, a uh, Rhodes Scholar, came and proved it worked. It's a set of holes. You can't put a slot in a blade because the blade will fall apart. But you'd like to. So we designed a set of holes which have a slot on exit, holes on middle. There's a bit of metal to hold it together. And by a neat trick, we accelerate the flow through the holes so the throat is actually at the outside. And we made them by stereolith. And there's a uh, liquid crystal picture, and you can see that apart from a few little blocked places there, they cool much better than the holes that you saw two pictures ago. Uh, the flow is better. This is a fog picture of what the flow is like out of cooling holes, and don't let any engineer ever tell you that blade cooling is a steady phenomenon. It isn't. You can see there are a lot of vortexes, interactions between rows and so forth. When you put uh, consoles in, 
it looks much more like a slot, and in fact, you can see the transition from laminar to turbulent there. The, that's a side picture, that's a top picture there. So that was a great success, and some of you will know what film cooling effectiveness, it's a measure of how good you're doing, and you can see this is the suction surface of the blade, and we had consoles uh, there, there, and you can see that the effectiveness in this region is considerably better than normal cooling holes used. Now, um, it's being tested in um, a Trent 1000 at the moment, and with any luck, uh, it'll, go in the, um, it'll go in the production engine, and I'll be rich, but uh, probably not. <laughs> <laughs> okay, just a quick slide. We're the first people, and I was reminded of this by a reference to this paper, in a recent one, we were the first people ever to measure the spectrum of the turbulence coming out of the combustion chamber, which is rather important to the turbine designer, because the turbulence increases the heat transfer to the blade. And Roger Moss and I did it, and we um, found some very interesting things. This is actually at Pystock, and that's a set of probes being traversed rapidly through the flame, so we can take measurements before they melt. Okay. Tom Povey did a doctorate mainly on the Pystock Tunnel. He's a physicist. We seem to attract physicists and electrical engineers. And he's uh, been involved in a number of projects. This one is, you wouldn't think it a difficulty, but engine manufacturers have problems knowing how much air is going through the engine. Because the shape of the blades is now so complex that you just don't say it's a throat and that's what's causing it. So this is a device where you put in a ring of engine blades, actually from a running engine, and transiently feed them with air, watch the change of pressure, and measure the flow, and you've got to measure to within about 0.2%. You've done very well there. Here's a set of Trent blades, actually, in the, um, in the machine there, and it fits into where we used to have the cold heat transfer tunnel in that there. That's a silencer which we bought from Rolls-Royce Bristol for £10 when they'd stopped using it for jet fighters. He's also been involved in... Uh, the problem with annular cascades, such as the blowdown one, is they consume 30 kilograms a second of air. And so even if you've got a tonne of air in a tank, it's going to be down to in 10 seconds or so, you're going to empty it. People have wanted to use sector cascades, just a few blades, but the problem is that you have a radial pressure gradient from hub to tip because the, the flow is circulating. And Tom and I worked out a method of de-swirling that swirling flow. This is a sort of unwrapped passage to give the right blade conditions. And the advantage of that is that we can put engine blades in, heat the coolant, and run the device from our tank for 30 or 40 seconds, during which the blade will reach an equilibrium temperature so we can test out cooling designs without having to run them in the engine. And this is an incredibly useful tool because not you just measuring the internal and external heat transfer and calculating the blade temperature. You're actually getting the blade to come to an equilibrium between the two. 
Um, here's a couple of the blades that were used. You can see they're used engine blades. And here's a sector of blades that's definitely been in an engine. And <laughs> that's the D-swell round. So that's a successful facility. We've also made the smallest gas turbine cascade in the world. We wanted to study flow patterns at supersonic exit mark numbers. And this blade, this has 20 millimeter cord blades. And it's done because the blades are actually machined into the si replaceable side walls of the tunnel. So you make them all on an NC machine to accuracies of about 100 to 10 microns or so. So you can make a cascade of blades in three days and retest them. Here's a, it's done from many runs, of course, but here's a picture, a Schlieren movie. As the mark number increases, you can see the shock waves growing. That thing going across is a pressure probe measuring the pressure changes. Uh, and that's been very successful. It's nice, cheap, simple, runs for three minutes from our tank. And help thanks to... Colin Wood, who had an architectural wind tunnel for many years there. Sadly, it's not, not going to be used anymore. This is an architectural min, uh, model. This is the boundary layer of the earth. Um, coffee cups inverted are the simplest way of doing it. <laughs> he retired, and we thought, how can we use the tunnel? So we built the largest turbine cascade tunnel in the world. <laughs> The blade is here. It's a wooden test blade. It's a one-meter cord. It's got a heater tip so we can do heat transfer. You can see the size is four meters long, and it sits inside that other tunnel. Pepe Palafox did most of the work. He's now working for, uh, don't mention it, GE. And um, he, he was small enough he could actually crawl in between the blades. <laughs> We used what's called particle Im image velocimetry. Uh, this is a picture that you wouldn't understand what it was, except if you correlate between now and a little later, you can get um, velocities over a field. And for example, remember in the turbine, this is the tip. This is the wall of the tunnel. We moved the wall of the tunnel, and this is a map of the, of the flow under the tip. Now, in a turbine blade, this is about 0.2 millimeters. In a one-meter cord blade, it's 30 millimeters, so you can actually take measurements. And we took heat transfer to the tip as well. Okay, another one that Terry and David have been involved with is brush seals and leaf seals. Engines have to seal the various parts on the shafts from each other, and traditionally it's been done by what's called a labyrinth seal, which is simply a baffle held as close as you dare to the opposite surface. They've been working on what are called brush seals, where simply a pack of brushes, a pack of metal brush fibers, which rub against the uh, shaft. They're called bristles, and there's a lot of work done with those. Uh, Terry instigated methods of making the bristles not turn against the shaft. You can see that you can have problems. There's problems are the advantages that they give low leakage, the disadvantages that they wear. Recently, they've moved on to what are called leaf seals in which the brush is replaced by a set of leaves. 
and David's having a lot of success with that at the moment. Another strand that I haven't got time to do it is that Peter Ireland, in particular, has done a lot of um, heat exchange work, and you have novel heat, heat exchanger geometries where one flow is every second hole there and the other flow is that way. Very complex flows. We use liquid crystals to, and big models to give the heat transfer coefficients. Back to hypersonics. We still have a hypersonics tunnel. Alex Matthews, who's a departmental lecturer, sadly his five years are up. This tunnel used to be in, owned by Bristol Sidley. It was moved here in the late 70s. It's stuck, as you can see, in an undercroft. And we've, um, it's a device which depends on, on, it's a shock wave, shock tunnel with a piston in it, and you get about 40 milliseconds of very high pressure, very hot runtime, and you can get Mark 7 flows. But we've used it for gas turbines. One of the problems in a gas turbine is that if the combustor, and this is a diagram, should get a hole in it, the inside of the combustor has 40 bar hot gas, and the outside air has less than one bar. Now, at 40 to 1, if you expand a nozzle through 40 to 1, you've got a hypersonic jet. And so, if I can work out how to get backwards. If you put a hole at the end of the barrel and put the model downstream it with the hypersonic gun tunnel, you can see it there with cracks of various forms. You can get the heat transfer that the outer casing would suffer from and work out how long before the pilot and passengers need a parachute. It's also been used uh, in, for scramjet, which stands for supersonic combustion ramjet uh, work. This is a model in the tunnel with a Mark 8 nozzle. You can just see the intakes there. There are four intakes. And this model was entirely manufactured by stereolithography, which is a rapid prototyping technique. And all the little green bits here are the pressure tappings, which were built into the model, so no drilling. Very good. A word from our sponsors, or on our sponsors. We're in a high-technology, high-value industry. It's the second largest aerospace industry in the world. This is, my figures are a bit old, but something, a turnover of about 18 billion. Our turnover has been between half a million and a million. And we've worked mainly with Rolls-Royce and Kinetic, but also the American Air Force, Alstrom, the European Space Agency, Doughty, NASA, <coughs> EC, and EPSRC. And we have had long-term relationships with a lot of these people. Okay. Here's a picture of the group in 1995, and here's a picture in 2005. You'll recognize some of the familiar faces, but we've got a lot older. <laughs> okay. Now, the future. I retired last year. Terry's retired. Phil Legrani has been appointed professor of turbo machinery, and the whole group is going to move into a new modern building called the Access Point building in 2008. Now, as I retire, I wish very much the group good luck for the future. Now, 
some successes. An FRS, an FN, RNs, two fellows of the Royal Aircraft Society and one fellow of ASME. We won gold, uh, Royal Society gold medals, four of us did. I did a Google Scholar trawl, just put in the four main names, and I got 287 papers. I don't know how many we've actually published. It's somewhat more than that, because Google, Google doesn't get any. It was interesting, in the Journal of Turbo Machinery, Turbo, Terry pointed this out, in 64 papers in the July, the recent edition, there are six references to Oxford work. So someone's using what we did. Hundreds of research students have been educated. Not all of them have gone into engineering, but they certainly know how to do research when they've been with us. We've had over half a million a year income for many years. I think we've made a major contribution to the UK gas turbine industry. And I think we have an international reputation. Recipes for success. Strong group community spirit and sympathetic leadership has been throughout. There's been a continuity of experiment, experience and knowledge by the academics and the uh, technical staff. We've all been around a long time. We know what's been done and what hasn't and where you can go. We've attracted incredibly high-ability DPhil students, including a number of Rhodes Scholars. There's a Rhodes Scholar with us now, but he did soil mechanics in this room. Uh, We've had brilliant research assistant, postdocs, and technician support. And we have run the group in such a way that these people feel they have equal voice with the rest of us. So often they have suggested things. We've a long association with the major gas turbine manufacturer, Rolls-Royce, and I'm glad to say there's a Rolls-Royce man here. We used novel solutions. We used novel instrumentation. We innovate, we innovate, we innovate. And above all, we all enjoyed it. I enjoyed the research, and we all enjoyed the research and the company of a great crowd of people. So, I think we should break out the champagne with a Mark 7 champagne <laughs> cork. Thank you very much. solving is, as I showed you on the smoke picture, discrete holes. Um, firstly, the flow tends to leave the surface, and secondly, there are regions between the holes which are not well cooled. A slot is the best way of cooling, and we managed to mimic the flow field of a slot in something that can actually be cut with a laser. Those holes are ruled. In other words, you can put a laser and do that sort of thing and, and automate do them. And the result is that, especially near the hole, you get much better insulation of the surface. In other words, you lower the heat transfer coefficient and you lower the temperature of the gas which is driving the heat onto the surface. Okay? Josh Hill, two together the 
I hope you can hear me at the back because I'm not using microphone. Uh, well, firstly, Martin, that's a superb account of 38 years of research here. Um, I think in one thing you have been far too modest about the effects of this book. Uh, a friend of mine in 1971 was responsible for the high temperature turbine blade on the 211, which we were in some trouble with. And uh, after some engine running, they had a press conference and he was asked, how did the engine behave? And he said, it behaved as expected. What he didn't say was that the blade lasted 12 minutes, <laughs> as he had expected. <laughs> uh, nowadays, you require a minimum of a blade of maybe 15,000 hours, in which case the aeroplane has gone 8 million miles, and if it's in a nice cool climate like uh, Iceland or somewhere, you get maybe 30 million miles, uh, 12 times to move back. Now the other thing that's happened, and you contributed very largely to, is that subsonic aircraft over the last 40 years have become more fuel efficient per passenger mile by about 70%. About two-thirds of that is due to the engine, and a large proportion of that is because of the uh, heat transfer work, being able to run it hotter, as you said. Now, the traditional engineering method of, of developing things is to build a big rig and test the thing, probably until it breaks. Uh, for this sort of work is extraordinarily expensive. It does use very, very scarce resources which are in, were in competition for other projects. And so the progress is very slow. Now the genius of the Oxford work is that you had a simple facility that you could do very accurate measurements in, which you couldn't do in the big facilities, and that you could get answers that could be put into the computer programs. So you contributed, I think, enormously to the, both the uh, life of the blades, and therefore the economy of the thing, and also the fuel economy. So I congratulate you upon your superb lecture, and I think you'll join with me in thanking you very much indeed.